Tesla is feeling the pain from its operations in China. Its factories there have easy access to the world's biggest car market, but sales have taken a major hit. How widespread is Beijing's influence? A senior editor talks about his experiences at the World Economic Forum. Diplomats from five countries face off in Beijing. The in-person meeting featured remarks from both the U.S. and Russia. A Chinese woman says her father was murdered as part of Beijing's persecution of a peaceful meditation system, and that seeing his body after death revealed what really happened. And in an undercover call, a Chinese medical staff member admits to organ harvesting at a hospital, focused on prisoners of conscience. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Reports say American automaker Tesla delivered 18 percent fewer electric vehicles in the second quarter. It's largely being blamed on China's COVID-19-related shutdown, which disrupted production and supply chains. Let's take a closer look. The world's biggest electric car maker said on Saturday that it delivered over 254,000 vehicles in the April to June period, compared to over 310,000 vehicles in the preceding quarter, ending a nearly two-year-long run of record quarterly deliveries. A resurgence in COVID-19 cases in China had forced Tesla to temporarily suspend production at its Shanghai factory and also affected suppliers' facilities in the country. Tesla is ramping up production at the Shanghai factory with the easing of the COVID-19 lockdown, which will help boost deliveries in the second half. China has been instrumental in Tesla's rapid increase of vehicle production, with the low-cost, lucrative Shanghai factory producing roughly half of the company's total cars delivered last year. CEO Elon Musk has said demand for Tesla vehicles remains strong, but supply chain challenges still remain. Early in June, Musk told executives that he had a, quote, super bad feeling about the economy and needed to cut about 10 percent of staff at Tesla. Tesla shares have fallen 35 percent so far this year, hit by Musk's $44 billion proposed acquisition of Twitter, the China lockdown and macroeconomic uncertainties. As the World Economic Forum gains more influence on the global stage, its ties to the Chinese communist regime also come under the spotlight. NDD's Cindy Drew Keir from The Nation Speaks sat down with senior editor of Human Events Daily, Jack Posobiec, to find out more. The World Economic Forum is an international organization that seeks to lobby governments and businesses. Its annual meeting in Davos brings together politicians, business leaders and influencers to discuss issues that impact the global economy. Jack Posobiec, senior editor of Human Events Daily, was in Davos to report on this year's meeting. He says Beijing's influence at the forum was evident. And even though we saw on the, everywhere at the World Economic Forum you would see Ukrainian flags, Ukrainian house, this outpouring of support for Ukraine. But we also noticed that the one word that nobody seemed to be saying was Taiwan, that nobody was talking about Taiwan, there were no panels discussing Taiwan, no speakers were referencing Taiwan, and we saw a CCP delegation all over the entire area. China has vowed to take control of Taiwan, which Beijing claims as its own, not ruling out the use of force. The island is also largely excluded from international organizations that have China as a member. Because of this, Pasobic says Taiwan is ignored, even though its situation is similar to that of Ukraine. 
it flies in the face of just about everything they say about Ukraine. They say Ukraine is a smaller country that is uh, facing aggression from Russia, a larger country. Uh, they say Ukraine is a democracy. We must effect, protect democracy, defend democracy, and that's why we support them versus an autocratic regime. And I said, well, wouldn't all of that apply to Taiwan as well? Tensions between Beijing and Taiwan are at their highest in decades. President Biden described China as already flirting with danger, as the regime repeatedly sends warplanes through Taiwanese airspace. So it actually makes you start asking more questions than who is funding the World Economic Forum's events, who is underwriting so much of this stuff, and when you realize how much money is coming from the CCP. The World Economic Forum says it receives financing from its 1,000 member companies. They're generally international enterprises that bring in over $5 billion in annual revenue. According to the official website of the forum's Beijing branch, more than 100 of its members and partners are Chinese companies. The WEF's Beijing branch is the first foreign NGO legally recognized and registered in China. It maintains close partnerships with state-run agencies like China's National Development and Reform Commission. A troubling new report about China's human rights record. A practitioner of spiritual meditation practice Falun Gong says her father was killed through organ harvesting and that she saw his body afterward. We spoke with her and other Falun Gong practitioners at the International Religious Freedom Summit last week in Washington, D.C. Falun Gong is banned in China and has been ever since the Communist Party launched a campaign to eradicate the peaceful practice in 1999. NTD's Melina Weisskopf has more. So it is still killing people. And my mom is a very good example. She suffered since the very beginning of the persecution for the last 23 years. His mother was killed just a few months ago after being arrested three times and tortured simply for practicing a meditation discipline called Falun Dafa. Practitioners of this ancient spiritual belief follow the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. The more people know about this, the less people will suffer. And one young girl, Ming Kui Wong, felt the pressure of the persecution at a very young age. When she was just five years old, she saw her mom at a brainwashing center. Being tied up on a chair with like a thick plastic tube inserted into her nose and she was um, being force fed. That was the first time I ever saw my mother. She was and being used was... as a pawn in the Chinese Communist Party's agenda to force her mother to give up the practice. It was a way to like break her spirit. But the Chinese Communist Party's brutal persecution has reached unimaginable horror. Many of these prisoners of conscience are victims of live forced organ harvesting. Uh, what, what shocked me the most uh, is the stitches uh, on his throat area. And uh, the incision was uh, all the way down, which clearly indicated that my father's organ had been harvested, likely while he was still alive. Yuhan was 19 years old when her father died. I, I stepped closer to embed in the closed and uh, uh, after I'm opening two buttons and the police immediately stopped me and uh, forced my family out of a facility. But they all tell me that despite this torture and the mental scars, they refuse to renounce their faith. We believe in truthfulness, compassion and tolerance. That is not wrong. That is universal principles and it has made me become 
a better person. Because of their perseverance and dedication to the practice and telling their stories of meeting face to face with the persecution, the Communist Party was not successful in squashing the Falun Dafa practice. It really turned my life around pretty quickly and, it, and um, I was just trying to learn how to be a good person and it really did that for me. Their shared message is that this practice is good and it is a crime against humanity to persecute these people for their faith. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. The Chinese regime claims it stopped harvesting organs from prisoners in 2015. But at a press conference in Brussels, human rights activists revealed evidence that the Chinese regime continues to perpetrate such crimes against humanity. NTD's Anna Rodriguez has more. A press conference was held on forced organ harvesting by the Chinese government at the Press Club Brussels Europe on Wednesday. In a clip shown at the conference, a member of the World Organization for the Investigation of the Persecution of Falun Gong talks to a surgeon at a Xinjiang hospital, posing as a potential client. I contacted you a few days ago about my daughter-in-law. I just need your confirmation. Can you get Falun Gong donors? Although no one talks openly about it, they are healthy donors, aren't they? Yes, that's right. That's the case, so good. Yes, yes, it is. We say you can choose a donor from 30 years old, if you're lucky. You could get one in your 20s or even younger, between 15 and 20. All this is possible if you're lucky. Gary Cartwright, the editor of EU Today, said he found the forced organ harvesting Falun Gong practitioners inhumane and said it was important to present the information in the footage to the public. This is, uh, this is real deep investigative journalism at its best. And uh, anybody watching that, when they hear reference to an organ donor as young as 15. This brings it into sharp focus. This isn't just a human rights uh, abuse of, 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 of those we see around us all the time. This is on a par with Holocaust. Falun Gong practitioners practice gentle exercises, cultivating a healthy body and following Buddhist law, taking the universal values of truthfulness, benevolence and tolerance as their guide. For almost 23 years now, they have been brutally persecuted by the Chinese Communist Party and one of the main victims of forced organ harvesting in China. Zhang Yinhua, a Falun Gong practitioner persecuted by the Chinese regime, told her story. In prison, we were forced to take blood tests, and they only tested Falun Gong practitioners. Once the police ordered other prisoners to burn and persecute me, they threatened me, saying if I didn't obey them, they would also take me to have my organs removed. Director and co-founder of Human Rights Without Frontiers, Willie Forter, said he didn't believe the claim at first, as it was so cruel and beyond the understanding of a human being. But with the accumulation of uh, the evidence and uh, also the documents and the testimonies of uh, people that have been collected with the incentive of uh, Falun Gong uh, and by professionals uh, from the medical field, uh, uh, it's, not, it's been now for years uh, uh, obvious that this is awful uh, practice by China is a reality.
Anna Rodriguez, NTD News. Several Western ambassadors are criticizing Russia. They commented on Moscow's invasion of Ukraine on Monday, while in Beijing for a forum hosted by China's top university, Tsinghua. The greatest threat to the world order is the Russian war in Ukraine. U.S. Ambassador to China Nicholas Burns said China should not spread what he called Russia's political propaganda, adding that Russia's war against Ukraine is the greatest threat to the global order. The World Peace Forum includes ambassadors from the U.S., U.K., France, Russia and China. Alongside the U.S., other Western ambassadors criticized Russia's invasion, something that Russia's ambassador brushed off. The diplomats also turned their attention to China at one point. They urged Beijing to stop blaming NATO, the world's largest military alliance for the war. Ambassador Burns also touched on a hot topic, biological weapons labs. He said China has been lying in its claims that the U.S. runs those labs in Ukraine. He voiced hope that China would stop pushing those claims and reiterated that those labs don't exist in Ukraine. Coming up, Communist China denies the commitment it made to Hong Kong. It signed on to the deal 25 years ago when the U.K. handed Hong Kong to Beijing rule. According to that agreement, Beijing promised to keep a one-country, two-systems policy unchanged for 50 years. And a former chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom sheds light on the situation surrounding religious freedom in China. And she details how she believes the West should deal with it. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. China is denying the existence of any commitment made to Hong Kong by the Chinese Communist regime. The country's foreign ministry spokesperson made the statement on Friday, the anniversary of the day Britain handed Hong Kong over to Beijing rule. China's statement comes in response to criticisms from British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. A day ago, Johnson's office shared his speech online, which focused on the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover. His remarks accused Beijing of failing to comply with its obligations under the transfer agreement. But on the 25th anniversary of the handover, we simply cannot avoid the fact that for some time now, Beijing has been failing to comply with its obligations. It's a state of affairs that threatens both the rights and freedoms of Hong Kongers and the continued progress and prosperity of their home. When asked for comment during a press conference, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Zhao Lijian said, quote, Britain has no sovereignty, no rule, no supervision over Hong Kong after the handover, and there is no such thing as a promise. 25 years ago, when the British government handed Hong Kong to Beijing, the Chinese Communist regime promised to keep a one-country, two-systems policy unchanged for 50 years. That policy allows Hong Kong to retain its capitalist system while still being considered a part of Communist China. It's written into both the Sino-British Joint Declaration and Hong Kong Basic Law. A recent survey shows almost half of young Hong Kongers feel pessimistic over the city's future. At the end of his speech, Johnson said that the UK will not give up on Hong Kong and will do all it can to hold China to its commitments. 
Here to shed more light on what's happening in the city is Katrina Lantosweat, president of the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. We spoke to her about the recent changes happening in Hong Kong and what people can learn from it. Well, first, going backwards, I would say, guess what, folks? We saw this coming. We saw this coming. And in the same way that... You know, when China was welcomed into the World Trade Organization, there were a lot of people who said, are we sure this is a good idea? Are we sure they're going to play fair? Are they going to play by the rules? Well, no, they didn't, to their advantage and our disadvantage. My father used to introduce um, again and again in Congress um, legislation opposing the idea of a permanent normal trade relations with China for just that reason. He said, we need to continue to hold them accountable. When um, sovereignty over Hong Kong was returned to China a number of years ago, there were many voices of caution saying, can China be counted on to keep their promise? And they clearly have not. They made a treaty agreement that Hong Kong would retain its... Retain its um, Independence isn't quite the right word, but its ability to function under the system it had, which was basically a democratic system. We see now well short of the terms of that treaty, of the 40-plus years that the treaty was intended to run, um, that they have completely crushed any degree of independence, democracy, and rule of law in Hong Kong. A few years ago, the Lantos Foundation, which I am president of, gave our highest prize, the Lantos Human Rights Prize, to Joshua Wong, who is another one of the democracy voices in China who has been um, arrested and imprisoned now for a considerable period of time. What's happened to Hong Kong is a tragedy, and it is, um, it is a reminder to me that we need to be more vigilant on the front end because it is much harder to reverse these sorts of terrible um, incursions than it is to stop them in the first place. Next, we go to the South China Sea, where typhoon season is in full swing. A group of Chinese rescuers pulled 12 bodies out of the waters nearby Hong Kong on Monday. The reports come from state media. A vessel called the Fujing 001 was torn in two by a tropical storm last Saturday. Only four were rescued out of 30 crew members. 14 people remain missing as of Monday. Local authorities said they sent out hundreds of boats and seven airplanes to join the search. The officials also warned that the chances of rescuing more are very slim. The storm marked the first typhoon to hit China this year. Typhoon Chaba has brought heavy rains and flooding to the region, with winds of up to nearly 90 miles per hour. Democratic nations around the world agree that religious freedom has been deteriorating in China for decades. But what can the West learn from the situation? And what will be done about it going forward? We sat down with former chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, Nadine Mayenza, to get her take. On the note of China, I think the State Department has designated it a country of particular concern, CPC, since 1999, right? Right. And now, 23 years mm -hmm. later, <laughs> you and others have mentioned how conditions in China especially continue to deteriorate. And so going forward, what do you see that maybe could help change right. that? First of all, I think it's important that we look back and learn from our mistakes because 
you know, USERF had 27 countries it covered in the last report. Only four of them saw tiny improvements. So we're, we're moving in the wrong direction. Almost every 11 countries deteriorated. Um, uh, 12 countries stayed the same, but it was like stayed among the worst in the world. So it wasn't like a good thing they stayed the same. And so we're at a point where we got to look back and see what went wrong. What, what can we not do again? And when you look at China, we, we you know, they had this CPC status um, with the, the U.S. government, but yet religious freedom was never brought up in so many important discussions about trade, about business, about economy. You know, we gave them the opportunity to become a rich country, um, gave them favorite trade status, all sorts of things, not at time anything to human rights, religious freedom. So here we are, they have all this power now. We had more of the power, we didn't use it. They're sitting in a position of, of power and, and what can we do you know, to, to press them? Obviously sanctions has been something the US government has been doing. And because of that, I got sanctioned myself by China in December as retribution for the sanctions I believe that we had put on them. And they claimed that I had interfered with the internal workings of the Chinese government, which I thought was quite interesting to do from Philadelphia. But um, so it, the U.S. can do a lot of things to push China still. You know, they're still the most influential country in the world. We can work with the United Nations, with other countries, continuing to do sanctions. We gave China most favored nation status, all of this trade. Now they're the world's second largest economy. So given that economic importance and leverage that they have, what can individuals and companies do to try and balance that? Because right now it seems a lot of them are going maybe against their morals to do yeah. business. So is there a way to balance that? Uh, you know, there there is. I mean, I think that the, the um, important legislation banning goods coming from Xinjiang was super important and it was just implemented last week. You know, businesses need to um, follow that legislation. They need to not be fighting it and be looking at where they get their goods. Um, I think all, com all you know, companies in the U.S. need to look at their supply chains for, for security reasons as well. Um, you know, are you supporting slave labor in China? Because we know that not all slave labor is, it's not all in Xinjiang, it's throughout the whole country. That's just the, the worst part of it with, with um, especially with, with um, the Uyghur Muslims and the other Turkic Muslims being in concentration camps there. And we know they're being used for slave labor, but we know it's much wider than that. So a lot of things U.S. companies can do to, to source from other places. And the U.S. government still has a, a whole lot of power to be able to push China in the right direction, you know, positive incentives, get other countries to provide them, and also sanctions and get other countries to stand with us when we're standing up to them. And it seems right now NATO, for the first time, there's four Indo-Pacific region countries that are joining in. How do you see NATO maybe playing a role, or can NATO play a role? I certainly hope so. You know, the, the purpose of NATO is to, um, you know, to stand for, for the, our shared values. And certainly standing up for Taiwan and against China's aggression fits our values. So I know it's very sensitive. Um, and, and certainly, you know, the, the one thing the U.S. has learned is getting involved in military actions around the world doesn't always play out like we hoped it would. So we've been avoiding those, as you can see. Um, but, but I do hope that the, the White House is using every lever it has right now. Um, to protect Taiwan and to make it clear that um, any action against them will come at a huge cost. And I hope the international community is doing the same. And I, so, I know so much of this happens behind closed doors, so it's really hard to know what's happening. Um, 
but I do hope that the, the White House is being strong because this is an important moment for this administration and it's an important moment really for the world order. And from the individual level, what can people do to really help? Maybe they're like, these are laws, these are like, mm. I, I don't have a role. What can the individual oh, do? People, individuals can do so much. I mean, social media has been such an important place here. I really don't think that the Uyghur genocide would have made the impact it did had the just the average person not talked about it, you know, retweeting people, telling stories. I think it's super important, whether it's a prisoner of conscience or someone who's been a victim of crimes in these countries, to be able to tell their stories, uh, let people understand what, what, what it costs. I mean, so much of the time when we're having these interviews, or even if you read a report from USERF, we talk about a lot about religious freedom violations. Um, and, and that's one of the important things about our travel is, is you go and you meet people and you see the suffering that, that, that's caused by a religious freedom violation. And it puts it in context in a different kind of way. I mean, there's true suffering that's happening because of the actions of the government. And those stories can be told on social media. You know, look, um, you know, I go in a store and if I go into a new store, I'll often go to the manager and say, do, where, where do you source your, your items? And, you know, I was just in a, a, a pretty big chain store. Um, in the King of Prussia Mall, near where I live, outside of Philadelphia, and I asked a store, and they said, oh, we're doing less from China now, we're bringing more in from Vietnam, from Indonesia, and there she was showing me all the different stuff she's getting. So they report that back, and so I think checking on where you buy your, your products, where they're coming from, make sure that the managers, the owners, people know that you're paying attention, so they start paying attention. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on this show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinaandfocus.ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. The 2022 NTD 8th International Chinese Vocal Competition will be held from September 29th to October 2nd at the Merkin Hall of Kaufman Music Center in New York City. The competition is honored to have specially invited vocalists with the world-renowned Shen Yun Performing Arts to serve on its panel of judges. The gold award is $10,000. For more information, please visit vocal.ntdtv.com.